What is up, Red Rocks Church? How you guys doing? I love it. I love it. If you guys are visiting with us at any of our campuses, my name is Chad. I'm the pastor of Disaster, and you will see why if you keep coming back. Uh, As you heard uh, Ronnie say at this campus, we're in the last week, the final installment of our series, uh, Once Upon a Time. And I hope, like he said, has been a blessing for all of you guys at all of our campuses, and God spoke to you um, through it. I want to do this before we go any further. Can we make all of our campuses, Arvada, of course, Littleton, Lakewood, and can we just give the most gracious round of applause for all of the men and women at our God Behind Bars campuses. We love you guys so much. Love you guys so much. So as we get into this last uh, installment of the series, I've got a quick disclaimer. This is going to have some PG-13 content. And so if you have little kids and you don't want them to hear uh, kind of some of the issues concerning sexuality and relationships, this is the time to take them to Kids Rock. We have at all of our campuses an amazing uh, age-appropriate thing going on over there in Kids Rock. So this would be the time at any campuses. Consider yourself warned. Uh, Wives, if you have any immature husbands, that also need to be taken over to Kids Rock. You don't want them hearing this talk. There'll be snacks. Just get them over there. Come back, and we will get into this, all right? I'm going to read a statement from the book of John, chapter 1 and verse 14. This is John, one of Jesus' closest confidants while he was here on earth, saying this about Jesus. He said, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen his, Jesus's, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father. And now this is, this is key, full of grace and truth. This is what's so amazing about Jesus is when he came, he came full of both things. This is difficult. He came full of grace and truth. And the reason I start off with that passage of scripture is simply because of this. If there is any subject we're ever going to talk about in the life of our church when it comes to behavior and when it comes to ethics and when it comes to the biblical approach of those things, if there's ever a time where you need your pastor or your preacher to be preaching from the fullness of grace, but at the same time, not denying the fullness of truth, it's in sermons like these around this issue of human sexuality, right? Here's the problem though. And here's why I'm setting up our our time where we're about to pray together. I'm not Jesus. He came full of truth. Chad's not there yet, right? I'm trying. I want to be, but I still miss grace sometimes. I still don't fully understand the the magnitude and the beauty and the depths of grace. And so I'm, I'm human like you, right? And sometimes I get this truth piece wrong. I wish I didn't. But sometimes I do. And so here's what we want to pray in these next few minutes, that that God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, would get me out of the way and that I would be able to speak about a subject that is so profoundly significant to the health or to the destructions of relationships. If you want any type of relational fairy tale to go to a fall faster, this is the issue where that can happen. And the Bible has so much to say about it. And so can we just pray that in these next few minutes that it would be met with grace and that it would also be met with truth? Heavenly Father, I just pray, God, that you would just bless this weekend at all of our campuses with such a sweet and prophetic word from you, God. I pray that it would be timely. God, I pray for everyone like myself that has a, that has a, a past history of sexual indiscretion. God, I pray that there would be healing, and I pray that there would be a sense of forgiveness, and I pray that there would be a sense of redemption in this place. That's what you came full of grace to do. But God, on the other hand, we have a responsibility to preach the fullness of your truth, and God, I pray that you would help me to do that, and to do it unapologetically, yet so mercifully. 
God, I believe you can do that in these next few minutes. So would you just through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you come and would you speak to us? And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So how many of you guys grew up going to church at all campuses? Raise your hand real quick. Okay, a bunch of people grew up going to church. How many of you guys are old enough to remember the great Protestant evangelical phenomenon known as Sunday school? Anybody remember Sunday school? I loved Sunday school. I was a ministry kid, so I was in church every day of the week almost, way more than I wanted to be. But if there was one thing at my church I loved, it was Sunday school. And it was for two distinct reasons. Number one, donuts. Our church... I mean, we, we, I promise you, we had a tiny little church that basically never grew, and I loved it, but, but we hedged all of our bets when it came to evangelism on donuts. Like, if we have donuts, people will show up, right? And no one showed up, but I ate tons of donuts, and I loved it, all right? At Sunday school, we just had donuts everywhere, and so I loved it for that reason. And then secondly, I don't know about you, but I loved the stories that we got taught in Sunday school. I loved especially those Old Testament stories because they were kind of like these epic movies we make nowadays. I mean, they were crazy. They almost, when I would hear them, they almost felt, if I'm being honest, they felt more like fairy tales than they did history, right? I'd read them and here, here's the deal. I had a, a small church, so I had a teacher that kind of progressively uh, walked me through most of my elementary school time in Sunday school. And her name was Mrs. Wilson and I loved Mrs. Wilson and Mrs. Wilson didn't quite love me so much. And here's why I had, and I'll just put this nicely. I had some, some learning disabilities as a kid, but I had some strengths as a kid that, that they didn't quantify with grades, right? I, I had a learning disability. I had trouble uh, reading and some different stuff, but I also was very verbally gifted. <laughs> and so when, <laughs> when you're verbally gifted, but not book smart, that's like a teacher's nightmare. I promise you, Right. And then I also had another gift. It's a, it's a curse at times too, but I had a blessing as a kid is I was extremely analytical for my age. I just had a gift. Again, I didn't get a grade for that, but I just had this ability to, especially sitting in Sunday school with these stories, to, to listen to them. And I could take these stories down a path that either the other kids didn't want to or they didn't even think to, right? So I was Mrs. Wilson's nightmare because they're trying to keep these things age appropriate. So Mrs. Wilson, for example, she'd have out the felt board. You guys remember the felt board? That was awesome. We need to bring that back. Forget technology. The felt board was awesome. So what happened, if you don't know what that is, this was this board, and she would pass out all of the pieces or the characters, the felt characters, to all the kids in the class. And as she progressively read the story from the Bible, she would have us come up at different times, and whatever piece we held to the next part of the story, we got to put it on the board. And it kept us engaged, and we loved it. And so, for instance, we, we'd be being told the story of Noah's Ark, and you know, we'd all be putting our stuff up there. And eventually, if you were the special kid, you got the rainbow or you got the dove, right? Because that's the big moment, and everybody put them up there. And then as soon as it was done, Mrs. Wilson would be like, all right, so let's remember, kids, we have a God who's a God of the covenant, and that's what the rainbow, and that's what the dove means. And then she thought she would be done. And then well-spoken, analytical Chad would go, keep in mind, second grade, I go, Miss Wilson. And I talk like this, Miss Wilson, that Noah's Ark store was awesome. I loved it. Thanks for letting me put that animal up there. Just a quick question, though. So you're like telling me that like thousands and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people like drowned to death in that story? She's like, no, 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 Chad. Let's, 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 let, let's remember God's a covenant God here. Remember the rainbow kids? I'm like, so like moms and dads are like trying to hold their kids above water. So like, All right, Chad, why don't you go get a donut? And I'm like, we'll do. We'll do. <laughs> done deal. 
Then the next week we'd be like David and Goliath, right? And we'd do the whole felt board thing. And she'd be like, all right, kids. So let's remember you've got the rocks of integrity and passion and the stones of justice and mercy. And you can slay your giant with them. And I'd be like, ah, that sounds neat. But, 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 but Mrs. Wilson, so you're telling me that this like youth group age kid like took some cheese and some bread to, to, to battle for his brothers. And by the end of it, he had slayed an 11 foot giant in the valley and went down there and cut his head off and held it up for both sides to see. And eventually they made the young kid king. Like that really happened. She's like, yeah, yeah, kids. But remember the stones of integrity and like you can slay your gi- Chad donut. I'm on it. <laughs> I knew what I was doing. Right. I guarantee you, Mrs. Wilson had a flask with my name engraved in it. I guarantee you she <laughs> donut for you. Little bourbon for Mrs. Lois. She's so sweet, too. Bless her heart. I hope I never see her, though. She will taser me. <laughs> I, say, I say that to say this, though, this weekend. This is so important. I, I still, if I'm being honest, we, we have an honest moment with me, especially my analytical brothers and sisters. I still, if I'm not careful, I can be flipping through some of the narratives in Scripture and, and it, it's the, these stories seem so impossible sometimes and so otherworldly that everything in me wants to just call them allegories, wants to just call them metaphors, wants me to just call them stories that are made up to teach us these beautiful principles in life. The problem is, though, is the word of God doesn't allow us to do that. And the reason I bring that up is because we've been in Genesis this whole series, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because as I've said for years now, I believe all of life's questions could be answered in the Garden of Eden if we would just look closely enough. And the problem is there's too many people, especially in modern secular society, that call Genesis 1, 2, and 3 nothing more than allegory. Poetry, a beautiful metaphor to teach us some of the beautiful things about how creation may or may not have started. And the problem with that, though, is Jesus doesn't see it this way. See, I believe in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 being the literal account of creation, not because Genesis 1, 2, and 3 says it, but because Jesus believed it. He literally, a couple different times, quotes from those chapters verbatim. Now, why would a God who comes to earth and knows that he's going to call his word completely authoritative, why would he mess with us in Matthew 19 when he said, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? If God's design for relationship and for marriage wasn't between a man and a woman, and that the, 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 the sexuality that comes in relationship would be exclusively between one man in this lifetime and one woman for a lifetime, if Jesus knew that we were going to call all his words authoritative, and yet he didn't mean it that way. Isn't that cruel of him to do? Because all the divisiveness that that type of theology about the institution of marriage has caused? He knew, and yet he still said it. And we're going to read a passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where not just Jesus, but the Apostle Paul quotes from the verse that we're going to camp on tonight. None of them were acting as if it was metaphorical or allegorical. They were preaching Genesis 1, 2, and 3 because it was the literal creation account. And the reason I spend time talking about this before we get into the specifics of what we're talking about this weekend is because if you don't understand that this is literally God's original intent, then you can toy with all of the aspects of human sexuality and you can basically do what we're doing in our culture now. You can kind of just define for yourself based on what feels good or what's convenient or what seems right to you. And then we've got a huge church culture 
and a huge world that doesn't know what we believe and why we believe it. And we've got all kinds of divisiveness. And that's never on this side of heaven fully going to go away. But we have a responsibility to understand that when we read this stuff from Genesis, this is the authoritative word of God. So much so that then we'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this weekend after I recap Genesis and we'll see that they're in agreement together. They're actually quoting each other. Let's read Genesis 2. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper therefore suitable for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man, Adam, said, this is now the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then the verse we camp on for the rest of our time. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And then here's what I want us to hone in on. And they become one flesh. Now, the reason I want to hone in on that specific last statement, they become one flesh, is because this is specifically talking, although you don't see it right away in this passage, this is specifically talking about the act of sex between a man and a woman to consummate marriage. See, God's original intent and only intent, his current intent for sexuality is that it would be used as a catalyst for covenant, as I would put it. It would be used as this spiritual bonding mechanism between one man and one woman so that they could walk through this life with an intimacy that they don't share with everyone else. We're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in a minute that the Apostle Paul quotes this verse and he's trying to tell this church in Greece that has all kinds of sexually wrong ideas because they came from this perverted culture of Greek um, worship mythological worship and in their worship we're going to read it it's crazy they were literally bringing prostitutes into worship to have orgies as their form of worship that's what these new converts that's what they grew up hearing about and knowing about this was common to them and so he's having to kind of as their pastor teach them these new rules about God's old and original intent that's what we're about to read but what I want us to understand is that God's original intent and we'll see it in the scriptures was between one man and one woman, and not to ruin your fun, not to hold you down, not to mess with all of your hormones and the biological aspects of sexuality. He wasn't trying to make your teenage years awful and embarrassing and prudish. He was trying to protect us because the original created intent behind sexuality, not just for procreation and not just for two people to experience pleasure, but most importantly is something deeply spiritual happens when you participate in this thing called sex. And most people throughout all cultures since the beginning of time have never seen it that way. They've never read it that way. It's always been biological. In fact, we're about to read this church in Corinth. That was their big argument about sex. It's just like eating. You just got to do it. Paul's going to talk about that. He's going to use their own arguments on them to say, wait a minute, you're getting this wrong. I love you. No condemnation, but you're getting this one wrong. Let's read it. First Corinthians six. Paul says this. I have the right to do anything you say. He's using their argument. This isn't, this isn't scripture here. Okay? He's using the, the Grecian argument that they're bringing to the table as to why they're trying to bring prostitutes back into Christian worship, which is, you think we have church problems, right? You email me, can we have a more dynamic men's program, or when are we going to have a men's conference? I'm like, well, at least we don't have prostitutes in church yet. Give me time. 
Right? At least we're not doing, right? Like, so, like, when we need some grace, remember, this is the church of Corinth that we read about all the time. They got some struggles too, right? So, side note, sorry. He says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. That's what they said. Your rights are your rights. Just make sure it benefits you. It's extremely self-centered. Listen, you have all the rights in the world. Nobody can tell you what's right and what's wrong. That was their fundamental belief system for millennia. But just make sure it benefits you. And then secondly, Paul's using their argument again. I have the right to do anything, but I won't be mastered by it. This is, this is the Greek's approach. Listen, you can do anything you want. Don't let anybody tell you what's right and what's wrong. Just make sure whatever you do doesn't master you because then you can know what's wrong, right? Sounds like some pretty decent thinking so far. Goes on to say this. You say, he's using their argument again, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. Paul's saying, listen, I know you think this sex thing is just biological. Therefore, you can, you can, you know, as long as it doesn't master you and as long as it benefits you, then you make the rules. Paul's saying, that's what you grew up in and I love you, but now let's talk now that you're under Christ, God's original intent. And it says this, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Did you hear that? He's saying something so important there. The body's not meant for sexual immorality. Anything that is outside of a relationship between a man and a woman who have made the covenant and commitment of marriage. Isn't that crazy when I say it? In 2016, Denver, Colorado, even as I'm saying it, I'm sitting under the tension of the weight of some of you, especially newer believers, like these people in Greece were going, what? One man, one woman? What do I do while I'm waiting to get married? There's a lot of time where my hormones are working in between somebody asking me to marry them. What am I, you know, like, right? Like, I get it. I understand the tension of of this standard. But listen to me. Any standard of morality that God ever introduces to creation is always for your benefit. And until you come to that place... You will never be able to sit under the beauty and yet the authority of the word of God. It'll always be the Grecian approach, which we in our culture right now have, right? Does that not sound like America right now, especially when it comes to sexuality? I have the right to do anything as long as it benefits me. Is that not the culture we live in right now? We are the church of Corinth in this area of sexuality. I have the right to do anything as long as it doesn't master me. Doesn't that sound pretty Christian? That sounds wise. Yeah, do what what you want. You're under grace. Paul had taught them well about justification by grace. And now he's having to come back and going, oh, okay, I don't think they fully get it because now they're starting to bring some of these things back under the guise of, listen, now that we're under grace, we can do whatever we want. And Paul's going, no, 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 no. Grace is never a license to breach God's original intent. Never. Never. Since the body's not meant for sexual immorality, it's meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. What he's saying is, listen, sex because the body's meant for the Lord, it is always, like everything else, a means to an end. Like everything we do with our bodies. Exercise, eating, sexuality, it's all a means to an end, and it's always for the Lord. And so anytime we do any of those things, and it's not to bring glory and honor to God, we call that sin. It's missing the mark, right? It's getting outside of God's original intent and desire for us. And this is our culture right now. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It's not I have my own rights as long as it benefits me. It's not I have my own rights as long as nothing masters me. It's the body was not meant for any type of sexual activity outside of the bounds of covenant and commitment that we call marriage. Why? Not to ruin your fun. Not to be the cosmic killjoy in the sky. 
that's trying to set you up for failure. He's doing that because he originally created sex as a bonding mechanism. We call it a soul tie. You're literally tying your soul. There is an increased degree of intimacy the minute you participate in sexual activity with someone that was designed to fuel your covenant. So when you're casually having sex or just casually sleeping around, or you're sleeping around with a boyfriend or girlfriend, even if you think someday we might, whatever, we still say, no, 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 put the brakes, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. As long as there's an opportunity for breakup, don't do that, because they're gonna have a part of you that was reserved for covenant, that was reserved till the deathbed, till death do you part. Now, I know this is weighty, and so can I take a, can I take a strategic time out for a minute, and can I just remind you of my testimony? lest you think that I'm just the pastor that wants to come up here and boldly proclaim the word of God without any grace around it? Do you understand that I am a person who has made some great mistakes in this area pre-Christ? Some great mistakes. By far the most destructive. I mean, I, I, I experienced drugs, participated in all the alcohol stuff, all the typical kid party stuff. I did all of that stuff, and none of it cumulatively compared to the damage that I still sit under the weight of from my decisions on how I went about sexuality before I found Jesus and before I got married. Do I feel any condemnation for that? Absolutely not. I refuse to. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Let that free you up tonight. If, you, if you're like me, you've got a testimony. You've got a past, maybe even a present. But can I tell you something? I, I don't sit under any condemnation, but I still sit under consequence. I still even 42 years into life, sometimes in my marriage, feel the weight of my past sexual decisions that affect my wife who doesn't deserve that, right? You understand that? Come on, some of you share my story. You know what that's like. So I'm not, I'm not boldly proclaiming this stuff to get a bunch of you in trouble or make a bunch of you feel convicted or bad. I'm telling you this as a pastor because I love you. Young people, we have so many young people in our church. We have a responsibility to passionately proclaim this type of message all of the time because nothing, young people, will destroy your relationships and future relationships and future marriage faster than sexual indiscretion. I promise you, you will bring some baggage into marriage that God never intended you to have. I was thinking about this this week, knowing I was going to talk about this. You know how many people have been murdered throughout humanity? Because of sexual indiscretion? Like a, a scorned wife who got cheated on or a scorned husband who got cheated on? Do you know the type of rage and anger and jealousy and resentment and bitterness that comes when, when that happens? Well, why do you think a human soul feels like that? If it was just something that's kind of like do good because it feels good and it's just part of life and it's biolo biological, we wouldn't murder people when, when our spouses cheat on us. We wouldn't sit for decades with rage and anger and unforgiveness and let it dictate our souls. Unless what? Unless there was something profoundly spiritual that happens when two become one flesh. That's why Paul looks at them and says, listen, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Goes on to say this, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Now, he's talking about their specific situation going on there. He says, never. But don't miss what he's really trying to say when he teaches him. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Remember when I told you that that Genesis 2, 24 passage 
was talking explicitly about sexuality, when the two become one, Paul just proves it right here. He quotes it. He says, for it is said, the two will become one flesh, right? He's saying, when you, he's saying to the people in Greece, when you, when you sleep with a, a prostitute, you're doing something that was saved for something sacred. Don't do it. Because you're, you, you're tying your soul to that person that you may never even see again. More or less make covenant and commitment with. So he says, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. I love this C.S. Lewis quote in the Screwtape Letters. He says, wherever a man lies with a woman, there, whether they like it or not, a transcendental relation is set up between them, which must be eternally enjoyed or eternally endured. And we have so many people inside and outside the church, both, that are living lives in, in, in the bounds of marriage and doing nothing more than sexually enduring everything because of their choices and their decisions and their mindsets and not understanding it instead of enjoying it. And it shouldn't be that way. There's people that can't fully, even now that they're in Christ, now that they've got the new understanding of God's original intent, now that they're living the way that God originally intended them to, they're still feeling the effects from their past decisions sexually and can't fully enjoy but sometimes have to endure sexuality because of how they misappropriated it for so long. And God's up there going, oh man, I never wanted that for you guys. I never wanted that for you guys. And that's why I plead with the young people who've got so much life ahead of you, I'm saying it is so right and it is so noble and it is such a beautiful thing to do to make a choice before you have to make a choice. Pre-choice choice to say, I am gonna live pure for God in this area of sexuality and I'm gonna make some decisions before the heat gets turned up. So when the heat does get turned up and I am in a situation with a person of the opposite sex that I really love and wanna pursue, that we already have decisions made I want that for you guys, but you got to understand the purpose behind it. I'm not trying to ruin your fun. The Word of God is not trying to ruin your fun. It's trying to protect you from the danger that can come from sexual indiscretion. So Paul goes on to say this, pretty clear, free from sexual immorality. And then he takes it to an even deeper level. He says, he says to the people in Greece and to us, since we're just like them in this area right now, he says, all other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. He's classifying sin here. Now you need to understand this. When it comes to eternal consequences, all sin is equal. Gossip is as eternally damning as sexual immorality. You need to understand that. But when it comes to the practical output of sin, consequences are different. The Bible's telling us right here, there's nothing that carries with it greater human consequences than sexual immorality. In my translation, nothing can take you from a fairy tale to a fall faster than sexual indiscretion and immorality. Please guard your heart. Please guard your heart. At the expense of being called the prude evangelical Christian in America, let it happen. Let that persecution happen and be okay with it. Because you maybe get called those names, but someday there will be a degree of intimacy and beauty in your marriage that you paid the price for and God is going to honor and bring a depth to your marriage that some people forfeit because of a wrong idea, mindset, and approach to sexuality. I don't want that for any of us. And here's the good news. It's never too late to start changing. You understand that? 
How often does the Bible say God's mercies are new? Every 24 hours. Every morning, God's mercies are new. It says great. That's how great his faithfulness is, which means any of you at any of our campuses sitting under the weight right now, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, knowing that your lifestyle isn't currently lining up with the word of God, this isn't to condemn you. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. This is a saving message. This is us pleading with you through the word of God to say you can change right now at any time, at any moment. Men and women at God Behind Bars, listen to me right now. I want to talk to you. This, is, this can be a game changer for you. I know some of the games that go on behind bars. I've heard some of the stories. I've been told. I've been schooled about you guys and what you experience. And that's why I take time out to talk specifically to you. You can stop that behind the bars right now and experience a freedom that some of us out here don't even have because of our decisions. And I want that for everyone in our church, including those of you men and women behind bars. goes on to say this. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? He's pleading with them now. He's trying to give them a vision for why this sexual talk is so important. See, the vision I grew up with in church was as simple as this, and it caused a lot of mistakes for me. It was, don't do it. Why? God said so. Next topic, right? No one wanted to talk about it when I was a kid. No one in church wanted to talk about it. It was, don't do it. Why? God said so. Read 1 Corinthians 6. And I'm a kid, formidable kid, trying to get, you know. And the Bible says, without vision, people do what? Cast off restraint. Young people, I want to give you a vision behind purity, behind why we pursue sexuality. If not, you know what you'll do? You'll just cast off restraint and, and, and become like the Greeks and just do whatever feels good as long as it benefits you and you don't get mastered by it. The problem, though, is God's going, if you understand my original intent, it's impossible, impossible to toy with sexual immorality and not get mastered by it. It's impossible. And and I've lived that, and I say I concur. It's impossible. It's a powerfully spiritual thing, this thing God gave us, this gift he gave us called sex. He says, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Ladies, When that young, good-looking fella is courting you and you're on a date and it's getting late, first of all, go home (laughs) alone. (laughs) Second of all, if things start getting frisky, you use biblical language on him. So don't be tampering with the temple. (laughs) It's the Holy Spirit's. It's the Holy Spirit's. Remember that. You say, we don't tamper with the temple, man. You look at him and say, no, no, take me home. No tampering with the temple. It's late. I'll see you in the morning. New mercies. Let's go. (laughs) Paul's pleading with him, and he used so much language in the letter. If you go back and read 1 through 5, 1 Corinthians, he's using so much language about the beauty of the Holy Spirit. So when he makes this statement, they understood how, how powerful sexuality was. Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11, a couple chapters before what we're reading, Paul says this about the Spirit that dwells in you if you're in Christ. It says, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You don't want to tamper 
with the person that searches everything for you, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought, Paul says, except the spirit of that person which is in him. He's given him an example so he can make this next statement, which is this. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, if nobody can comprehend the thoughts of God except the spirit of God, you do not want to hurt and tamper with the person that's going to teach you the secrets of God. There is only one plan to understand the depths of God and his kingdom and his love for you, and that is via the Holy Spirit. And Paul's trying to tell them, you are blocking the work of the Holy Spirit revealing to you the depths and the beauty of who God is. You will never fully be able to understand and go to mature levels of depths and who God is and what he has for you in this lifetime if you keep blocking the Holy Spirit by way of sexual immorality. Don't do it. The Holy Spirit is the only thing that we have to teach us about Jesus and God. That's how beautiful the Holy Spirit is. That's the gift we've been given. And when, we, when, we're, when, we're, when we're desecrating our temple in this way, Paul, Paul's saying, listen, you're going you're, you're to miss out on so much of the beauty and the depth of what God wants to show you through his Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't give away the kingdom secrets for free. Old Testament verse that I had in my office for almost a decade said, friendship with God is reserved for those who fear the Lord. You can be saved. You can be on your way to heaven and never be intimate with God. The same way you can be in a marriage and in covenant and go to your deathbed together and never be intimate with each other. Never have depth. It's one of the craziest things about relationships. See, God's grace is good enough to save your soul and you still forfeit intimacy with him that he wants to have with you. And not many things will put a wall up between God's voice over your life. Please listen to me, young people. Between God's voice over your life and sexual indiscretion. I think I've made my point. How many of you like me, suffer from a disease called Facebook-itis. <laughs> Any of you on there too much? You should probably calm it down a little bit. I'm on there a little too much. I'm not proud of that. Um, I should be setting social media standards as a pastor, but I just like it, man. I, just, I like seeing what date you're on and what food you had last night, and I like all the crazy articles, and I, I like to hear the crazy political rants that all you are putting out there, see where everyone's at. Um, well, most of the time. Sometimes I just get sick of it. But anyways, I, I, I love more than anything on Facebook, though, are the, insp- you know those moments where you find an article or a moment or a picture or something that's totally inspirational? Well, I found one of those this week, and, and I, I felt like it was worth playing this weekend. This, this video I saw, it's a 93-year-old woman who's about to breathe her last, no joke. She's in a hospital bed, and, and we're about to see the last conversation she has with her husband before she passes away. Watch this. I love you. I love you. She said she loves you, Daddy. I love you too much. Behave yourself, she said. I'm always good. Okay. She said she loves you, Grandpa. I love you. Okay. Okay. This is your song. 
behave yourself, she says. Okay. Are you are on now. So a million or more times that <laughs> I want that for every single person in our church but can I tell you something that doesn't happen by accident right those you've been married for a long time that's where you go amen preacher preach it on preach that was amazing great it, it, it doesn't prices in this life are going to be paid the price for salvation please, please understand the gospel the price for your salvation has been paid in full no effort, no earning, no striving, no work. But for heaven that we will be in for an eternity to come to earth right now in this current state, we are going to have to fight. We're going to have to pay prices. You understand that? Jesus looked at, at people and said, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to pick up your cross. You're going to have to deny yourself rights. When you start to hear that, that Greek thinking that, hey, I'll, all the rights are mine as long as it benefits me and as long as I'm mastered by nothing, I get to do what I want to do. Jesus came and said, no, 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 there's gonna be plenty of times where, where you think you have the right to something and it's practical and it makes sense, especially in the culture that you've grown up in and lived in. And you're gonna to have to die to yourself. You're gonna to have to pick up your cross and you're gonna to have to follow my way. 
Do you know Philippians chapter two? You can go back and read it in full. It's a beautiful passage of scripture where Paul starts teaching the church in Philippi about Jesus and the beautiful implications of him coming down to earth. And one of the things he mentions is that Jesus fully God removed his rights from himself to come down here with us and to save us from our sins. And then Jesus invites us into that process of death so that we can really experience life. He says, you're going to have to die to yourself sometimes. You're going to have to pick up your cross. Young people, I'm trying to tell you that this idea of sexual purity is beautiful and it is right and it is worth it 100%, but you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to fight to make right decisions. Those of us in marriage right now, I don't just want to exclusively talk to the young people. Those of us in marriage right now, and, and you, you're stepping outside of the bounds of sexual morality. Maybe it's via pornography. Maybe, maybe you're letting your eyes go wherever they want and thinking that's not an affront to your spouse or your wife. And can I just say, gentlemen, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Nothing will destroy intimacy in your relationship faster than when you choose to stare at a woman that you're never going to make commitment with for the sake of pleasure and give energy to that. Don't do it. Don't do it. It will destroy you. And it will destroy the one that you love. I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with all of us. But I don't want to lie to you and act like it's just easy because you're a Christian. No, no, no. It's going to be a fight. But you got to remember, Paul said this salvation thing down here on earth, it's called a good fight. It's worth it. And God always affirms obedience on the other end with blessing. For the joy set before him, Jesus, what? Endured the cross, scorning at shame. Why? So now he sits down. The work's over. He sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a principle that we now walk in practically, which is now there's going to be, there's going to be crosses for us to bear. And as long as we understand that on the other end of that cross, there's, there's joy then it's worth it. That's the vision, young people, for why we abstain, why we wait, why we have such radical ideas about sexuality like one man, one woman, and not till you're married. That's why we do it, for the joy set before us. Right? That's God's gracious call to us, and I want that for every single person. So if at all campuses we would stand up, we're about to worship, and we're about to do this beautiful thing the Bible calls repent. I'm not going to have anyone respond with hands up like we normally do. Listen, when it comes to responses like this, there's a time for boldness and there's a time for discretion. This is a weekend that calls for discretion. I'm not trying to embarrass you. That's not the Holy Spirit. He's good. He's gentle. He's kind. He doesn't embarrass us. He doesn't call us out. Do you remember when Jesus met up with that woman caught in sexual indiscretion, caught in adultery? Do you remember what he does first publicly when there was a group there? He defends her. He steps in front of her and says, no, 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 no. You're not throwing a stone at this woman. Do you know what he does privately, though? Knock it off. Publicly defend, privately convict. That's the heart of Christ. So we're not going to have everyone raise their hands if this is a struggle. Maybe it's pornography for you. Maybe you're just single and you're playing fast and loose with different people and different partners with no concept of commitment or covenant in mind. And maybe you, you came in here and you innocently had never heard before that sex was something deeply and profoundly spiritual and God created it to be a catalyst for covenant. Not just something for us to freely do at our own whim and our own desire. 
Listen, God has grace for every single person at every one of our campuses that is sitting under the weight of conviction. And I'll tell you how we deal with conviction. Conviction was given to us to run to the throne of grace, to receive mercy in your time of need. You don't have to feel condemned. You don't have to feel bad because you have new mercies tomorrow. But what I implore you to do is to repent to come before God and confess your sins. The Bible says he's faithful and just to cleanse you and purify you of all unrighteousness every time. He's that good. You confess it. You call sin what it is. Call it specifically out as we worship. Not out loud. That'll get real awkward amongst all of us. But in your heart, you, you give it a name. You call it what it is because God's grace is stronger than any name you're about to call out. Any name you're about to call out, God's grace is stronger than that. It's powerful, but you have the first part to play, which is consecration. Remember, I'm going to say it all year. This is the year of victory. And victory in the kingdom of God always starts with house cleaning. It's all throughout scripture. Victory in the kingdom of God. Joshua, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do great things amongst you. I want those great things amongst every single one in here. So today is a day of consecration. So at all campuses, as we sing, for those of you who respond with, a, with an invisible hand up going, I'm that person. This message got me. This message, the Holy Spirit's convicted me. Would you beautifully during this time repent? And as the Old Testament prophet said, repentance eventually leads to refreshment. And I want everyone walking out of these doors refreshed by the Holy Spirit. Let's worship.